Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. There are many definitions for what an essay is, and the range of possibilities becomes immediately apparent when you look at the works of American writers from the 18th to the 21st centuries that are included in a new collection from Pantheon Books called The Glorious American Essay, 100 Essays from Colonial Times to the Present. Philip Lopate edited it, wrote its introduction, and provide head notes for all of the entries and he joins us now hi phil welcome back Hello, to our show thank you pleasure to be here you once told the new york times that you'd originally wanted to be a novelist or a poet and it took you a while to fall in love with the essay form what happened well uh i realized in some ways i had been writing uh fiction and poetry that in essays i could um i could combine the the narrative um, aspects of, of fiction with the associational aspects of poetry. And also, I, I, I was very drawn to the, the first-person voice, um, the confiding, um, um, honest, and sometimes mischievous voice of personal essayists. So I fell in love with the essay um, and um, ended up um, editing this uh, anthology called The Art of the Personal Essay, which uh, which did very, very well. Um, and um, then over the years, I've been urged to do something else, you know, like to update the art of the personal essay, but I liked the way it was, and I didn't want to change it. Um, so that led me eventually to this new project. You've also published Writing New York and American Movie Critics and a number of other things, but you've also continued to write fiction on and off. So right. I guess... Uh, that still has some appeal for you. Oh, and I love to read fiction, too. Yeah. Is the origin of its name a clue as to how flexible the essay form can be? So, well, certainly. I mean, you know, in French, the, the word essay means to, to, to try, to try, to attempt. It's an experiment. So it's a leap into the dark, in a way. Um, and, you know, essayists know that they... They can't have figured out everything before they start writing an essay. They have to sort of plunge into the dark and and follow their thoughts, uh, follow the follow the narrative track. Um, and so it's a very it's always been a very kind of um, fluid experimental form. Thinking something through. Thinking something through, absolutely. Now the essays in this collection. <laughs> are far ranging. Uh, they, they range from critical, personal, political, philosophical, humorous, literary, polemical, autobiographical, and you've included pieces that you might not have, many people might not have realized were essays like sermons, letters, speeches, newspaper, magazine columns, even book chapters, uh, and they deal with a wide variety of things. So what were your criteria for inclusion? Well, uh, the first criterion was that um, I had to really like it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to extend the notion of the essay, the range of the essay, because I do think that um, in in some of these forms that you've mentioned, uh, like the sermon, uh, the letter, the pamphlet, um, the speech, um, essentially they are um, ways of tracking a person's thoughts um, setting up a problem, um, and really working it through on the page. So, for instance, um, uh, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, that, that was a, a revolutionary pamphlet. Um, 
But I thought, you know, it's a it's a beautiful piece of prose writing. Why shouldn't I put in a piece from Common Sense? Um, and then uh, I got a chance to to fill in a lot of gaps that uh, I hadn't realized when I started the project. So, for instance, um, George Washington's farewell address. Um, you know, I was never very tempted to read George Washington. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, he seemed like a kind of um, uh, a stone colossus in a way. Um, he turns out to be a pretty good writer. A pretty good writer and a, and a pretty good thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the farewell address um, also had a lot of um, relevance to today because he was basically saying, um, don't get, don't get, um, don't let other countries um, dictate your politics, you know, um, and, um, you know, try to, try not to uh, get too entangled in foreign wars and things like that. Um, so I, I thought, you know, he was, a, he was a, a living voice in a way, thinking through something. And, and so the, it really, it really appealed to me to uh, to expand the the range of the essay to include these different these different forms. Uh, for instance, there was a period in the 1920s um, when the essay sort of went under a cloud, and, and most of the essayists who were keeping it alive were columnists, uh, newspaper columnists, um, and they all were very aware of their themselves operating in the tradition, the grand tradition of the essay, but they were also popular writers, you know, who are trying to keep it short and snappy. So I, I put in some of them, including someone like Dorothy Parker. Um, and then um, it just seemed to me that there were great essayists in every field. So instead of just looking in literature, uh, I, could, I could look under every discipline. Uh, you know, I could pick things like um, theology, Paul Tillich, or um, geography, John Brinkerhoff, Jackson, or um, nature writing, nature writing, um, uh, art criticism, Clement Greenberg. Um, So, you know, basically, um, I really wanted to um, to explode the idea of what an essay was, and 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 really give so much uh, variety to the form, so that people could rethink it. I mean, for instance, um, there's an essay in here by Jane Adams of Hull House, the, the woman who started the Solomon House uh, movement. And um, it's a really interesting essay. It's about, you know, uh, how to build social a sense of social community in big cities where young people are so alienated and strangers to each other. Um, now, I never would have thought of putting Jane Addams in a book like this, but one of my students had worked at Hull House, and she said, what about Jane Addams? So I was taking suggestions from everybody, and I got a lot of help. Now, had the essay form already had a long history before Americans started writing them, who were the earliest influences? Well, when I did the Art of the Personal Essay, I went all the way back to uh, to the ancient Greeks and Romans, to Seneca and Plutarch. Um, and, of course, the first great self-conscious essayist was probably uh, Michel de Montaigne. Um, and uh, Montaigne um, burst a whole tradition of the English essay, which included people like um, Addison and Steele, Samuel Johnson, um, William Hazlitt, Charles Lamb, Robert Louis Stevenson, all the way down to Virginia Woolf and Max Beerbaum and George Orwell. Um, so there were a lot of, there was, a, there was a grand tradition of the essay. It's, you know, it's a form that is essentially a conversation 
and it's a conversation across the centuries, um, as well as between the writer and the reader. But all of those uh, people you mentioned were Europeans, mostly British. Was there a conscious attempt by the early American writers to create something specifically American? That's a very good question, Lenny. Um, yes, uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, uh, our British um, cousins, let's say, uh, condescended to us, and there were always these uh, books by uh, British travelers going from America and, and pointing out that there were pigs in the street and men were spitting in spittoons and so on, you know. So, um, and then um, the, the earliest American essayists, like, like Washington Irving, for instance, um, were, um, were criticized by the English writers, uh, someone like Hazlitt, saying that he was just imitating them. So basically, um, the, the American writers, uh, you know, started to, um, to wage a declaration of independence. And, of course, uh, the first uh, uh, important uh, statement along those lines was Robert was Ralph, uh, Waldo Emerson's The American Scholar, in which he said, we have to free ourselves from, um, from the European model. We have to develop our own model. Um, and Edgar Allan Poe said, uh, just because we're good at engineering doesn't mean we don't have poetic souls, you know. Um, we can write as well as anybody, you know. So really it was that, that amazing um, uh, American renaissance of, uh, of Hawthorne and Emerson and Thoreau uh, and Poe and Margaret Fuller um, that, that, um, that really crystallized the American essay. And, and, and the American essay does have certain features that are, that are rather different that have to do with the American character. But aren't we still debating uh, the meaning of the word American even today? Uh, as I was reading some of the, the older ones, I kept on thinking, gee, some things have never changed. Yeah, that was one of the, that was one of the, the, the central uh, pleasures of doing this book was that I realized how, how cyclical all of the problems that we're facing now were faced in the past and all the possibilities were faced in the past. Um, so the whole the whole notion of the, an American idea is very elusive, um, and 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 writer after writer was trying to get his or her uh, grip on that on that notion. What is the American, not just the American dream, but the American vision? Let's say, um, and you know the the um, it 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 has certain aspects to it, and it and it, it's changed a lot, but a lot of it remains the same, you know? So, you know, for instance, um, the whole notion of freedom um, also carries with it a certain um, resistance to authority, um, which we see now in, in all the anti-government um, uh, right-wing types, you know, um, who, who don't want to wear masks and things like that. that is, that's an unfortunate side of the American character. Um, so, yes, uh, it, it's, something, it's, something that, it's something that keeps recurring. Um, and keeps refining, you know, and and so so for me, the, the book ended up being operating on two tracks. One track was how did this literary form evolve, and the other was um, how does it intersect with the whole history of America, because the essay turns out to be a very good uh, barometer for what's going on uh, politically, socially, and so on, historically. Um, 
every every ear uh, had essayists commenting on on um, on the problems of the of the of the current moment. Um, so you can you can see the book in two ways. You can see it as a as um, one about a form, or you can see it as uh, a way of studying American history. It's been noted that many of these essays address themselves sometimes critically to American values. Yes, I mean th that's that's something that that also fascinated me was you know to some degrees writers and intellectuals have always been tended to be alienated from uh, from the mass of American society, um, and even to see it partly as their job uh, to to criticize. Um, so. You know, you have a lot of essays that are very um, um, sardonic about uh, about America. Of course, you have someone like H. L. Mencken, who was who was always making fun of Americans, calling them the bureaucracy and so on. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, this this whole question of of, um, of um, a lovers' quarrel with America, because they all they all were attached to America, but they were also very critical of it. Um, as we are today, um, there's, there's, there's a funny piece in it uh, by Christopher Morley um, making fun of the um, of all the alienated writers um, called Intellectuals and Roughnecks, in which he basically um, he basically said that these 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 spoiled young writers are really um, very self-serving in their in their um, disdain for America. Um, and they don't really understand the country. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is it, it is a funny uh, dialectic, you know, of um, of um, knowing that you that you are attached to this place, and also knowing that you have so much uh, to criticize. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Philip Lopate, who edited and wrote the introduction uh, to a collection of 100 essays from colonial times to the present under the title The Glorious American Essay. It's published by Pantheon. Don't many writers have differing ideas of just what an essay should be? Is that in the back of their mind when they're writing one, if they're writing one that is consciously an essay? Well, sure. I mean, you know, there, there are many people who have described what an essay is, um, you know, and, and, and they, all, they all differ with each other. Um, that's part of the fun of it. So, for instance, um, uh, Cynthia Ozick said that um, an essay should not, um, should not preach, should not have a, um, a polemical... Um, Argument that it was more like a kind of mazy stroll through through your mind, you know, um, and and others have said that essay has to have an argument, has to have a point. Um, William Gass said that um, an academic paper can never be an essay, um, and um, and William Dean Howells said that an essay is not an article. So he, he was kind of trying to to um, hem the essay in from journalism and to separate them. Um, this is true of any art form. You know, there's always this attempt to get at what is the pure aspects of, of the art, you know? Um, and um, I guess I'm a, I'm a pluralist, and so my approach is that uh, why, can't, why can't an essay um, have a strong political argument? Um, 
In fact, you know, uh, I put in a, one of the Federalist Papers um, by Alexander Hamilton because I thought, you know, in some ways the Federalist Papers were um, one of the most influential set of essays that have ever been written in America. Um, so, um, and also, I, I, I don't think that um, that writing an academic uh, paper per se means it has to be bad. It could be intelligent. It could be witty. You know, um, so there's certain uh, highly intellectual pieces in this collection that I put in, like Kenneth Burke's "The Status of Art," or there's this wonderful essay by George Santayana called "The Genteel Tradition uh, in American Philosophy." Um, because an essay can be a way, a casual way, let's say, of doing philosophy. A number of the uh, the nineteenth uh, century writers um, were either in the clergy or former clergy, so they're they're also bringing a certain kind of sensibility to the yeah. things that they write. Absolutely, and you know, I think that um, I started out uh, the collection with two with two Puritans. Uh, Cotton mm -hmm. Massa and Jonathan Edwards. Um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is, is a very well-known uh, um, piece of prose, uh, and it is a sermon. Um, and I think if you've ever sat in a, um, in a, a church or a synagogue and listened to, um, to the clergyman um, making a sermon, delivering a sermon, um, the good ones are, in effect, um, talking an essay, that is, they're setting up a kind of quandary and working it through, um, and that's where the tension comes from. So I do think that sermons um, were kind of um, uh, an early example of, of essays. Um, and of course, you know, this country, you know, at the beginning we did have a very, you know, in, in Massachusetts we did have a very um, a religious theocracy almost, you know. Well, I find it interesting that the piece you have by Cotton Mather a uh, Puritan clergyman who uh, I usually associate with the Salem witch trials is really about Greek and Roman poetry and theater. Yeah, so that was... And, and know, it was written in 1726, 50 years before the Republic was even founded. Yeah, because, um, you know, it's funny to say this, but, you know, I do think that um, we have a kind of a caricatured idea of the Puritans and that actually... Uh, a lot of them were, were um, fierce intellectuals, very well-read. Um, all of these uh, guys like Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards, they all knew Montaigne, for instance. They all knew the English essay. Um, and, and, and someone like Cotton Mather was actually um, in some ways um, enlightened and in some ways, um, you know, um, scary with his uh, belief in witches, you know. The same guy who believed in witches also believed in the value of inoculations, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So um, He promoted smallpox inoculations. Yeah, so, so the idea that, that he, he, was, he was dealing with poetry, this was, this was so, um, so intriguing to me that he was saying he, he loved poetry, but he was afraid that it would tempt you to the devil. So from the very beginning, there was this kind of um, uh, uh, divide between the, the ethical and the aesthetic, let's say, you know. Um, and he's and writing about that, Homer and Virgil and 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 the ancient gods. Yeah, but he was he was a little embarrassed by the sexual passages, you know. <laughs> uh, so you know, there, there, um, there was this essay uh, by by Mencken called uh, uh, the Puritanical 
tradition and in which he he basically said that American literature was being held back by the by the uh, the long shadow of the Puritans who were insisting on on moral um, content in, in in literature and really it should be focused more on aesthetics and on 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 the beauty of literature. Um, so there's always been like these two traditions: the puritanical and what what you might call the bohemian, you know, which is more represented by people like uh, Walt Whitman. Or uh, a really surprising one, Judith Sargent Murray's 1790 essay on the equality of the sexes. Uh, yeah, I was she, surprised in reading it uh, that she had actually found a sympathetic male editor at the Massachusetts Magazine who was willing to publish it because it is really uh, a strong feminist argument. Absolutely. And one of the things I did uh, in this book was to was to trace um, uh, the feminist uh, heritage in the essay. So here she is writing even before the revolution, uh, uh, arguing like Mary Wollstonecraft um, for the equality of the sexes. Um, and then you get um, Margaret Fuller, of course, in, in um, um, Women in the 19th Century, um, Fanny Sarah, writing of- Sarah writing. Moore Grimke, her, right. her article, uh, her piece on the condition of women in the United States from 1837. Right. Sorry for yeah. interrupting. No, absolutely. And Fanny Fern writing a very mm -hmm. satiric piece on delightful men, um, mm -hmm. which is hardly delightful. And then, of course, the great um, statement by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, The Solitude of Self. Um, so you have all of these, um, all of these feminist um, statements um, and then tracing it all the way um, through uh, so many good uh, women writers um, in modern times, you know, such as uh, um, Avian Rich and uh, Audre Lorde and, and Vivian Gornick. Um, so it's really, it's really a kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a link. It's a stream. And the same thing I think happens, happens with race among the uh, African American writers. You know, um, one handing the baton to the other. So did you include some of the essays because they seem very timely, like the ones that consider race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, social justice? Yes, I confess I did. Um, I, was, I was trying to be topical, but I was also responding to, uh, you know, to the fact that, um, that these uh, issues have been around for a long time, you know. Um, so, for instance, there is this essay by Randolph Bourne, who was a great uh, progressive uh, writer in the early 20th century, um, but also somebody who, who, you know, was a, was a, a hunchback and um, uh, suffered from a lot of physical problems. It's about um, being disabled in the way that uh, that people look at you. Um, uh, but there's also a wonderful essay um, uh, by Nancy Mayers. Uh, called "I'm Being a Cripple," um, hmm. uh, which is really, um, which is delightful because she's very, she's a very funny writer, um, and she insists on using the word "cripple," you know, uh, for herself. Um, so yes, I, 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 I did. You know, this book is coming out at a very topical moment, of course, because um, essentially the whole country is struggling with what is the American idea and what is, what is it to. Um, to what, what's worth preserving, what's, what should be jettisoned. Um, inevitably, my own politics were going to uh, be reflected here. So, you know, I'm, I am for uh, democratic um, uh, 
equal pluralistic, diverse society, um, friendly to immigrants and so on. Um, so that's why, in a way, I ended the book with um, with J.D. Smith, because J.D. Smith's piece, um, which is about um, Barack Obama and herself speaking in tongues, um, is really about the 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 fact that when when that immigrants come here, they continue to to be bilingual in a way, no matter what, um, and to have a kind of a, a binational identity, um, and that that's a good thing. So, yes, we yeah. finish? No, I just want to say that um, that of course um, I wrote it. I, I put this book together in the last five years, and um, you know, it's it's no surprise that I was dismayed by by the years of Trump's presidency, and so absolutely, I was I was being I, I could I couldn't I couldn't I could not reflect my own politics. Uh, through my choices. Uh, recently, we've seen uh, not a necessary resurgence of white supremacy, but uh, people coming, uh, becoming more apparent. Uh, do we see a debate in the essays from the 19th century uh, about slavery and as well as the sexism that we were just talking about? Well, certainly. I mean, we have we have um, uh, Frederick Douglass's letter to his master. Um, uh, which is a very uh, polished piece of rhetoric, um, uh, and and then um, uh, Martin Delaney, who was kind of like uh, Frederick Douglass's main competitor, um, he 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 has a piece here um, in which he's kind of chiding the white abolitionists because um, you know these white abolitionists um, are not hiring any any blacks to work in the office, you know, mm -hmm. so. Um, and he's also, you know, he's 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 charting us. He's, you know, he's he's getting at a certain kind of hypocrisy. Um, Martin Delaney um, was not um, for integration. He was for um, uh, blacks to settle in Africa or Canada or someplace else. So he wanted. Uh, he, he felt like the problem would never be solved. Um, and then, of course, uh, W. B. E. B. Du Bois, you know, was talking about the the color line as the the important uh, issue of the of the century. Um, then you have a very um, interesting piece by James Weldon Johnson called "The Dilemma of the Negro Author," which poses the question: Should black writers be writing for a white audience or a black audience, or hmm. or should they ignore the whole problem? And th these are problems that don't go away. You know, they're always being addressed and readdressed. So, but yes, haven't writers who felt that they were members of a marginalized group used the essay to assert or or to to complicate notions of identity? Yes, you know, initially perhaps to assert, but you know, every every minority group, um, and that includes not only um, um, ethnicity, but you know, like um, uh, sexual identity and so on, um, has tried to. Um, um, has found the essay to be uh, an ideal instrument um, for um, for claiming identity, um, but then sometimes for pushing back against identity. You know, so for instance, there's an essay here by Richard Rodriguez, uh, one of my favorite contemporary essays, uh, called Hispanic, in which he questions the whole notion of of, of Hispanic as a unified group. You know. And we've Which has been coming up now in in uh, 
analyzing who voted for whom. Completely. I mean, you know, uh, you know, as we see in these articles now, you know, Cuban Americans think of themselves as Cuban Americans, not as Latino or Hispanic, and the same thing with Colombian Americans and so on. So, yeah. So he was sort of he was sort of mocking the whole notion, and he was also mocking his own role as a representative Hispanic who was always being. Uh, you know, called and paid to um, to uh, represent uh, at conferences uh, uh, and so on, you know. Um, so what does it mean to become a spokesperson for a group, you know? A real surprise for me is a piece that Norman Mailer wrote for a gay magazine in 1955 called yeah. The Homosexual Villain. Yeah, so he, you know, he's a very good, he was a very good uh, essayist. Uh, you know, the case can be made that Norman Mailer was a better nonfiction writer than he was a fiction writer. Um, and um, in this particular case, um, he's, he's examining his own um, tendencies toward homophobia and, and, and realizing how wrong he was. Uh, and so he's basically, um, you could say he's coming out of the closet as a, as a sympathizer with gays, um, after after having committed various literary sins, um, and it's a side of Norman Mailer that 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 is not the truculent um, or uh, brash side, but but you know, very in a way a very sweet and reasonable side. He describes the experiences and readings that transformed his bias against gay men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, some of the times I I put in an, uh, the essay that. That everybody might have expected by someone, and some of the times I looked for something uh, yeah. that was a little different. Um, well, and in this case, uh, I thought this was a little different. Yeah. Well, some of these pieces are well known, but uh, I, I guess you're saying that you try to choose essays that aren't usually anthologized as well. Yes, as well. I didn't. I didn't want to avoid essays that were anthologized because you know I think that um, they're classics for a reason. You know. Um, but and, and of course some of the um, some of the um, the usual suspects you could say uh, like like Emerson for instance or Thoreau you know um, these are classics and they're wonderful pieces there's no reason to to not include them or Mencken's The Hills of Zion um, but then um, I was also looking for um, writers who are lesser known you know America is a very um, amnesiac country and a lot of a lot of wonderful writers have disappeared from our consciousness. Uh, we'll address that after I take a little break. Okay, Phil? Yeah. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, the show is called Leonard Lopate at Large. Before I get back to my conversation with my brother, I'd just like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by calling 516-620-3602 or to go online to give to WBAI.org to help keep this show and the station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, the number is 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two, or you can go online to give to 
WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a, a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now, but has to be during the show, will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Glorious American Essay, 100 Essays from Colonial Times to the Present from Philip Lopate. This is a, a big book and the diverse collection of its essays are sure to bring you hours of, of uh, reading enjoyment. But at whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep this show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org on the web. And why, why not become a part of this amazing community of Leonard Lopez and large listeners uh, that are really our only funding source? Uh, only listeners like you can keep this independent 100% listener-funded radio station alive on the New York radio dial. Uh, if you've supported the station in the past and your membership has lapsed, consider this your renewal notice. All joking aside, believe me, we need that support now more than ever. And please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us here, thank you so much. And now I'm returning to Philip Lopate, who edited, uh, wrote the introduction, and also uh, wrote introductions to all of the essays, all 100 of them in this book, The Glorious American Essay, 100 Essays from Colonial Times to the Present, published by Pantheon. Let's go back to the founding fathers, okay? Yes. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington are all included here. Um, weren't they and the early American writers making a conscious attempt to establish a recognizable national culture, something that was distinguishable from what they were leaving behind in Europe? Well, actually, they were... They were um... They were all good writers um, and um, and good thinkers, uh, and um, they, I think that they were um, they were very influenced by by the English model, you know, of of, of rhetoric, of of argumentation, um, and um, but but someone like Benjamin Franklin, for instance, does a very sly piece about uh, about Native Americans, in which he basically is very sympathetic to to them and and. And how they were being um, taken for a ride by some of the settlers. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson has an interesting piece in, on religion, in which he basically argues against the establishment of a state religion. He really wanted a separation between uh, church and state, which was very different from from the Puritans. Um, and, and some so, people today. Yeah. So yeah. So so I think there was that, an article um, in the Times just the other day about how Christian nationalists. Uh, really uh, have been strong supporters of uh, Donald Trump because they fear that uh, the separation of church and state will be more emphasized by the Democrats, even though Joe Biden is a, uh, a religious Catholic. Yeah, he's actually religious, Joe Biden. That's mm -hmm. unlike uh, Trump who pretends to, to hold, hold up Bibles. Biden Upside down. Religious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, go ahead. So they were, they were writing in a kind of 
um, you, you might almost say a, a, a Roman style, and they, and they were very influenced by by these uh, 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 Plutarch models of the um, uh, the great um, Greek and Roman statesmen. You know, uh, there was this, it was a very neoclassical idea. Now uh, we mentioned earlier some of these pieces are well known, others less so. Uh, some are, are, as you suggested, are relatively obscure. Yeah. Uh, uh, you apologize in your introduction for not being able to include notable writers like Gore Vidal, Oliver Sacks, and Philip Roth. I guess uh, 100 wasn't enough. Uh, or, or that other Philip who's written many essays, Philip Lopate. On the other hand, you've included some relatively less well-known writers like John J. Chapman, Agnes Repelier. Uh, Repelier, yeah. What? That's, those are good examples. I mean, John Renaud J. Chapman. Bourne, Mary Austin. Yeah, Mary Austin is this wonderful uh, nature writer. And one of the things that's going on in the book is uh, is uh, uh, tracing uh, na uh, nature and environmental essays, uh, starting with, uh, with uh, Audubon, um, you know, and, and going through people like uh, uh, John Muir and uh, Thoreau and John Burroughs. Um, Edward Abbey. Uh, all the way, what? Edward Mary Abbey. Austin, all the way through um, to um, Rachel Carson, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, and and I, wait, do we see a through line there or uh, do we see major differences over the years? Um, it's, it's, it's a very complicated question. Uh, we also includes Edward Abbey. Um, I think that uh, uh, there certainly certainly our ideas of of nature has evolved. You know, and and at the beginning, you know, Audubon talks about the uh, the millions of uh, of passenger pigeons that are floating around. You know, and everything was in abundance. You know, and then of course, uh, as uh, species started thinning out, you had a different kind of more elegiac way of of looking at nature. You know. Um, but when you mentioned uh, John J. Chapman, he was this amazing uh, uh, writer who wrote this piece called Coatesville, uh, which was about um, uh, the lynching of a of, of, of black uh, person. And um, he, it was an impassioned um, piece to get America to take on the guilt for what they were doing. Um, and, and so when it came to, to Chapman, I knew I wanted to put him in. Um, because part of what I wanted to do was to to rescue so much of this um, literature of the past. Agnes Replier was a very popular and prolific essayist um, who has almost disappeared from our consciousness. She has disappeared, in effect. So then, when I when I came to Edmund Wilson, uh, who everyone knows, I had to put in a piece by Edmund Wilson. I put in a long biographical essay he had written about John J. Chapman. Uh, so a lot of these pieces talk to each other, you know. Um, they're, they're in conversation with each other. Uh, and, and so I, I really felt in many ways more, um, more obligated to rescue some of this history. Uh, and that's why when it came to the present day, um, it, it was much, uh, much, more, uh, much thinner in a way. Um, because when you're an anthologist, um, the easiest part is to see the, dis the distance past and what has survived. The hardest part is to judge what is going to survive from our current moment. 
But aren't you really taking uh, care of that with the, this is the first of three anthologies. Yeah. And the second anthology is the golden age of the American essay, 1945 to 1970, in which you'll include uh, any number of uh, essays that couldn't make it into this one, but that are really important. And the third volume is the contemporary American essay, of the 21st, the 21st century essays. Yeah, so is... so you, I guess you didn't feel too guilty leaving some people out. Well, yeah, I mean, what happened was that when I, I did a lot of research. I, I read, I read and read and read, and and I filled in so many gaps. And after a while, I had a pretty good sense of what what a canon you could say would look like, you know, um, of all the all the worthy essays um, that have been written in America. It would probably be about five thousand pages. Um, so, and here you have about that. almost a thousand pages. Here I have almost a thousand pages. So what happened was, uh, I'll tell you the honest what happened. I I was working on the book, and I and I I went to Pantheon. I said, can we make it more than? They said it could be no more than 850 pages. I said, can we make it like 1,200 pages? Then I could really get into more of these crucial essays. And they said, no, Philip. You know, you know, books have to be a certain size, and they can't be bound any further. And uh, give it up. So I was I was crushed, you know. Basically, what I wanted was um, fairly idiotic. I mean, I, I you know I was dreaming, let's say. Um, but I had all these other essays that I wanted to put in, um, including many from this period of 1945, uh, the post-war period. Um, so then they came back to me and magnanimously said, um, "You can have two more uh, volumes," you know. Oh. Uh, at first, I thought they were going to give me one volume, but they gave me two volumes. Um, so then I really went to town, you know. Um, and what I did with the second volume, which was the golden age of the American essay, was basically focus very intensively on this historical period, um, which was the post-war period, which was a period initially uh, that was characterized by what Lionel Trilling called a liberal consensus. You know, America had won the war, and... Um, it seemed like America was going to be the beacon of tolerance, uh, and you had all of these, um, you know, movies and books coming out that were, um, you know, critiques of anti-Semitism, racism, and so on, you know. Um, so I put in some of those pieces in the second volume. Um, but I also well, we also had Joe piece. McCarthy at that time. Well, see, but that's what happened, is that that's part of the interesting story is, you know, like, what happened to that, what happened to that, Liberal promise. First, it ran into Joe McCarthy. Then it ran into certain internal contradictions, you could say, of liberalism. Um, but um, but I must confess that in many ways I still am a liberal. You know, I'm I'm a liberal progressive. I think. And so one of the things that that I realized uh, in the middle of the night one night was that there was a kind of uh, overlap between uh, the the notion of the essay. The essay uh, traditionally is spoken of as um, um, open, undogmatic, skeptical, um, and, you know, um, uh, something that's, that's more um, experimental um, and not rigid. Um, and that seemed to be uh, true of, um, of the liberal imagination as well. So I thought maybe this was such a fertile period for essays because there was something in, in the politics and the, and the mentality of the time um, 
that invited this kind of thinking. The issues that Wallace Stegner addressed in his 1980 essay, The Twilight of Self-Reliance, seem to be just as relevant today. <laughs> Much of it in reading it, I thought, gee, he could have written that last week. This is an amazing essay by Wallace Stegner, uh, which really was mind-boggling when I read it, because um, in many ways he, he traces the whole history of, of not just America, but the American myth. Um, and, and, he, um, and the American idea. American idea, and he, and he, and, and and by the way, in doing so, he he uh, cites so many other writers in this book. He cites Thoreau, he cites the um and uh, you know Emerson, and so on. Um, and so he he basically is is arguing that um, there was this kind of uh, character forged by the frontier, um, and uh, which was very. Um, self-inventing and self-reliant, um, and so what has happened to that type, and and um, and how and how much of it has been destructive, and how much of it has been productive, um, and um, he, he brings it up to his current time, which was a period when um, so many people had soured on the American idea, and you had book like books like Christopher Lash's The Culture of Narcissism, basically saying that. Uh, that Americans were um, um, pleasure-seeking, foolish, undisciplined, um, selfish, uh, self-absorbed uh, babies, you know. Um, and, and you know, he, he grants some of this, but he also says, you know, the American idea, um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't close the lid on it yet. Give it time. It's only a few hundred years old, you know. We, we, still, can, we still can make progress in this direction. And, and that a lot of Americans um, are better than that, you know. So, he, you know, he, he, he attributes a lot of the, the sense of, of freedom uh, to the fact that there was a lot of free land in America. Uh, and, and, and as long as there was free land, as long as the frontier was open, um, you know, there was all of this uh, infinite possibility. But once the frontier closed, things started to change. Uh, oh, he talks so, yeah, about very... the move toward the West yeah. uh, and, and the European the feeling of Europeans that they had been trapped in a finite space, and when they came here, they could just keep on going. Exactly, exactly. To the point where uh, even as late as the uh, 17th century, uh, some people thought that if you kept on going far enough, you're going to find some, you're going to find yourself connected to Asia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this notion of America is kind of like infinitely large and infinitely full of possibilities, you know? Um, you know, it's certainly intriguing, and I don't think it's ever it's ever quite vanished. I think I think a lot of uh, people who live elsewhere still view America that way. Now, I, this isn't part of your purview here, but uh, he is making contrasts with the Europeans. Uh, right now, there are a lot of Americans who are, are uh, paying attention to how Europeans are viewing our current crisis, political crisis. Uh, do we see some kind of interaction uh, in, in essay writing uh, between uh, America and Europe over the, uh, the years after the American essay distinguished itself as something slight, a bit different from the European model? Well, sure. I mean, for instance, in that period I was talking about, the Golden Age, one of the things that happened was that you had all of these European 
writers and intellectuals who were fleeing Hitler, who came to this country, and um, they. And you've you know, included a fair number of them in this. You, know, you, you didn't like just Hannah, limit Hannah, yourself to people who were born in the United States. No, like Hannah Arendt, for instance. Um, people like Hannah Arendt had had an enormous impact on on um, on American intellectual life. You know, uh, they 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 raised the bar, so to speak, and and. And one of the things that essays can do is they can analyze and they can, you know, they can really uh, think through difficult problems. So, so you know, th there's been a lot of, of fertile back and forth thinking in this way. And, of course, someone like Susan Sontag uh, was really uh, a champion of European thought. She didn't really have that much respect for American writers, but she loved European writers. Uh, and in many ways, she popularized a lot of their approaches in this country. So that, that, that cross-fertilization is, you know, is so, is so rich and necessary. You know, I, I definitely am um, somebody who believes in, um, in the impure appropriation of all cultures, you know. You shouldn't try to, um, to segregate uh, cultures one from the other and say, this is mine. You should keep uh, borrowing from each other. You also include Albert Einstein, Emma Goldman, Gertrude That's Stein. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, I'm trying to think, there's a whole bunch of uh, European writers here. But also, we were talking about speeches. Uh, you have Abraham Lincoln's, uh, his, what was that? Second his, in, uh, his second his, inaugural, yeah. And yeah. then and you have uh, Martin Luther King speech. Yeah, no, that was, uh, that was really, you know, I, I, I really... I really do think Martin Luther King was a great writer. Um, and and um, I didn't want to put in the I Have a Dream speech because it's too well known. Mm -hmm. So I put in this speech that he wrote um, against the Vietnam War, in which he basically is, is, is saying, I know, I'm, I know I'm getting into trouble now because you think I should just stick to, to civil rights. And here I am going out on a limb and attacking the war in Vietnam. Um, but I have to, you know. And he works through all of the, all of the, um, uh, the hesitations, the arguments, and so on. Um, and you know, he he was a visionary. You know, he had he had a very large uh, vision of America and 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 of justice, in effect. Um, so yes, I, I I certainly wanted to put in uh, uh, something by Martin Luther King. Now you have a lot of wonderful writing in this book. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite essayist? Okay, well, I think that I think that the greatest American essayist was Emerson, um, and I think that in a way we're all Emersonians, uh, and this will come as a surprise to people who who hate or dislike Emerson. But he he really had an enormous impact. Um, and part of part of why I love about Emerson is that his his thinking is so rich and dense that you never know what he's going to do from sentence to sentence, um, and and um, I read an essay like, like Emerson's Circles, or the one I put in this book, uh, Experience, and every time I read it, um, I'm, I'm finding new things in it, and I, I'm surprised by what he's saying, you know? He keeps, he keeps me off balance. He keeps me surprised. And, and so he's a kind of essayist, essayist. You know, I once, I once uh, asked Susan Sontag who her favorite American essayist is. She said, Emerson, of course. Um, so... Um, of course, yes, I think I think I think Emerson is 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 uh, is the one. But I also think that uh, 
you know, James Baldwin is a close second, maybe. But it's interesting that uh, both of them former clergymen. Yes, exactly. That's true. There's so much. So they both much left of, the church. Exactly. You know, Baldwin was a boy preacher, and some of his some of his rhetoric comes completely out of out of the church in a way. I I, I also had to uh, pick things that had not been in the author personal essay, so I couldn't put in. Uh, Baldwin's great essay, Notes of a Native Son, because I'd already put that in all the personal essay. So I, I put in a, a, an equally wonderful essay called Equal in Paris, um, where he got arrested for, uh, uh, for uh, essentially, uh, somebody had palmed off this, this um, sheet from a hotel, and, and they acted like he was stealing something. And he had to go through the, the, the Parisian um, uh, penal system, you know, um, it's a very, so if I have to leave it there, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. But oh, I do want people to know that Philip Lopez is a professor of writing at Columbia University's nonfiction MFA program, author of numerous books, also uh, many received many awards, uh, including uh, being admitted to the National Academy of Arts and Sciences. And today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Philip. Thank you, my brother. You're the best. And thank you for being on our show. That brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering it uh, and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Uh, or you can visit our website, LeonardLopedAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I just would like to ask you for your support of this show and the station that brings it to you one more time. If you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you on Leonard Located Large, please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and the station on the air. Uh, and one great way to do that without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. They are people who um, uh, contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large to, during this show will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing today, Philip Lopate's The Glorious American Essay, 100 Essays from Colonial Times to the Present. But you have to make that call right now. Uh, 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We're off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us on Wednesday when Ephraim Siegel will discuss juror number two, the story of a murder, the agony of a neighborhood, the story of uh, his memoir about serving on a jury. We'll see you then. <laughs>